Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. Nothing better than when Jesus shows up. Amen. So I want to talk about those two shouts today. I want to talk about those two praises, those two voices that came out of people. One of them was a praise and one of them was a call for an execution. But I want to talk about Hosanna, the shout to a humble king to rescue us. And I want you to look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11 with me. I'll have it on the screen, but you can look on in your Bible if you want to. But Matthew 21, this is Matthew's account of this event, and I just want you to notice some things as we read it. Verse 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, You will say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, that's the nation of Israel, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Think about that. Take your nicest jacket, your nicest coat, and lay it on the road to be walked on, to be trampled on. That's what they did. And others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You know, when I read this text, the first thing that strikes me about human nature, about all of us, about the people there that day, is that everybody loves a parade, everybody loves a celebration, everybody loves a party. Amen? Verse 9 says, and the crowds that went before and the crowds that followed were shouting. You ever been caught up in a moment? You ever been caught up in a parade? You ever been in a party and there's an energy in the room? There's something happening in a stadium? You ever been to a sporting event where everybody's getting excited and everybody's getting fired up? And you find yourself carried away in the energy of the crowd. You ever been there? And later you think, man, I acted crazy. I've seen quiet people who are really reserved get crazy at sporting events. I've watched grown men wear nothing but what we would call a pair of underwear, paint their bodies and their faces multiple colors, put crazy wigs on, get their bellies going, and yell and scream for a sporting event. Because people love a party. People get on bandwagons. Um, 
I mean, there were some of the people in this room, some of the people in this state that just not so many years ago couldn't stand the Seattle Seahawks. But then they started winning. And people love a winner. And suddenly, all kinds of folks were Seahawks fans. It's called a bandwagon. Well, the people that were there this day, they were on the bandwagon because things were exciting and exhilarating. God is gracious and kind, and He'll use whatever circumstances are necessary to attract people to Himself, but a day will come when the excitement's over, and we must follow Jesus through His suffering and His difficulty. And you know, I just stop here and and tell you that right here in our church, exciting stuff is happening. And some of you maybe are new to the faith, or you're new to our church family, and you're observing what God's doing, and you're, you're hearing stories, and you're seeing testimonies, and you love to come because of the energy and the music and the worship, and the people are excited, and you love to be here because you're getting moved along by what God's doing. But I want to remind you of something, and I want to tell you something. Maybe it's not a reminder. Maybe it's the first time you've ever thought about this. But there's going to come a point in your, your journey where your faith, where your excitement is going to be tested. It's going to be proven. The honeymoon's going to be over. The excitement is going to leave. You're going to find, this happens in, in, to everyone who goes to church. Sometimes you go through seasons where it just ain't as fun as it used to be. Where you'd rather stay home and Netflix binge. Or watch sporting events. Where your flesh, where your body, where your mind will tell you, I don't really want to go to church. I don't really want to read my Bible. I don't really want to pray. I don't really want to walk with other people. I just want to kind of indulge what I feel today. That moment's going to come. Or that moment's going to come when you're going to experience suffering or difficulty or life's going to take a funky turn and you're going to find yourself going, where is God? And what I want to tell you is God is right there with you. He's with you in the exciting moment, and he's with you in the suffering and in the moments of darkness. David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The greatest promise of the Bible, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Amen? It's easy to cry out for God to rescue us when the atmosphere is exciting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means come and save now. This saying was reserved for the promised Messiah who would come and liberate Israel from their enemies. The people were desiring liberation from Rome or poverty or the difficulty of living under this external enemy called the Roman Empire. Everybody was caught up in this moment and they thought Jesus was coming to save them, but they had no idea what it would actually take for them to be rescued and saved. And it wasn't that they would be liberated from a national disaster of being under the oppression of the Roman Empire. It's that they would be liberated from the sin that dwelled in their own heart. You know, and it's true of us, isn't it? We oftentimes, we want God to rescue us from the outside stuff, 
Oh, God, save me from that person. Save me from my spouse. Save me from that boss, from that job. Save me from that circumstance. Save me from that pain. Save me from my terrible bank account. Save me from the debtors, that are the, 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 those that are calling me, harassing me on the phone for money. Save me, Lord. We want you know, God to just come in and, and break our enemies' backs, backs and rescue us from outer circumstances, but the reality is most of the time God is dealing with what's going on right here. And until we get out of the mindset that says it's them, it's that, and I'm a victim always of my outside circumstances, and we quit seeing everything outside of us is our enemy, and we recognize that the greatest enemy is the enemy of sin in the human heart. And the selfishness that's inside of us. And we recognize that we need to take up our cross daily and die to those things until we recognize that we're always looking out there. We're experts at the blame game. It's also possible to get caught up in the excitement and not know who Jesus really is. You know, one of the beautiful things about this text is that Jesus came in on a donkey, a beast of burden. He came in on a lowly donkey. Now listen. They were looking for a big horse, a big, maybe a big white horse, and Jesus riding that horse as a conqueror with a sword at his side. That's what they were looking for, and he comes in on this donkey, ding, 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 ding. I mean, think about it. And in so doing, he was demonstrating, my way is different. I'm the God that washes feet. I want you to think about that. I'm the God that kneels and washes dirty feet. I'm the God that goes low where the lowly are, where the broken are. That's the God He is. He came to us because of love, right? When He entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and they said, who is this? It's possible to get caught up in the excitement and not even really know who He is. And listen to the crowds. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Even though that's true, that doesn't even begin to capture who He was. And it shows that the crowd was largely ignorant and caught up in the moment of excitement. They missed who He was. Many people were crying out to be saved, but they didn't know what they were crying out. They didn't know who they were crying out to and what it would take for that salvation to become a reality. To this crowd, Jesus was the prophet from Nazareth, but He wasn't really their Messiah or their rescuer, or their savior. For Jesus to become the rescuer, something else had to happen. A different cry had to go up because they didn't really know who Jesus was. Kind of like this story. I've, I've shared this story here before, but Cary Grant, and many of you won't know who Cary Grant was because of your age, but he was a, a great actor, and he was really big in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, that was before I was born. I just want to say that. So. He was big in my parents' and grandparents' generation, so I say that. But he once told how he was walking along the street, and he met a fellow whose eyes locked onto him with excitement. The man walked up and said, wait a minute, you're, uh, you're, um, I know who you are. Don't tell me, uh, Rock, uh, Hud, uh, no, 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 no. Grant thought he'd help him out, so he finished the man's sentence. I'm Cary Grant. And the fellow said, no, 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 that's not it, that's not it. Um, you're, uh... There was Cary Grant identifying himself with his own name, but the fellow had someone else in mind. John says of Jesus, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And it says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. 
Even when Jesus identified who he was as the Son of God, the response was not a welcome recognition, but rather the crucifixion. What did they want to kill him over many times? He claimed to be God, because only God can forgive sins, right? So we see that Hosanna was a setup. It was a, a bookend. The first bookend was, yeah, celebrate, jump on a bandwagon, get excited. But then the next step, what followed later in the week was the stuff of real substance, the only thing that can really save us. And that takes me to the next shout, crucify him, the shout of sinners in need of salvation, the shout of sinners who want him to die in their place. They don't even recognize it, but that's what they're asking for. Dorothy Sayers, an author, said this in God in Pain. She said, it's curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation when a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. I want to ask you, as we are in this season, have you become so accustomed to hearing about the crucifixion, about the death of Jesus on the cross for your sins? Have you become so accustomed to this story that we tell, well, around here we tell it almost every week, at least a little bit of it almost every week? Have you become so accustomed that you're no longer shocked and amazed and awed and in some ways repelled by the cross? I mean, let me remind you that in that time in the Roman Empire, the, the absolute worst way a human being could die was to be crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. You had to be the absolute worst criminal that existed. Usually an enemy of the state, a murderer, somebody who had done horrific deeds, and when you were crucified, you were beaten, and then you were stripped completely naked because humiliation was part of it, and then your bloodied body was hung on a cross, and most of the time, you were left there until you rotted and until the birds of the air ate you. And as people walked down the road, they looked at a ripped, torn, shredded body, and over time, that body decayed and it was the Roman Empire's way of saying to everybody, don't mess with us, we'll make it real bad for you. And so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, goes to a Roman cross for us. Less than a week later, Matthew 27, verses 20 through 26, says this, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. Notice that language. And destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, that's Pilate, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who's called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. 
You know, the Scripture often is telling in what it doesn't tell. The word there, scourge Jesus, they would have used a, a Roman implement known as a cat of nine tails that would have had metal and bone fragments in it. And as they beat him, it would have ripped his flesh and they would have beat him and beat him and beat him until he was flayed all over his body. Just ripped and torn. And what I want you to see here is yourself. You know, the thing when we look at the Bible that we all need to do is we need to internalize it. We need to personalize it. First, we need to read the, read the text for its historical background. We need to recognize these things happened and this was written to a certain audience at a certain time. But then we need to recognize that we're there. We need to apply it to our own life. And what I want you to see is that each of these characters here, Barabbas, Pilate, and the crowd represent something in our nature. Every one of us have a little bit of Barabbas in us. Every one of us have a little bit of Pilate in us. And every one of us have a little bit of the crowd in us. And the answer for each is Jesus, our substitute. Amen? Jesus substitutes for the Barabbas in each of us. Verses 20 and 21 says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Barabbas had committed murder in an uprising against the Roman Empire and was called a rebel, notorious prisoner, and a criminal in different places in the Gospels. Barabbas was deserving of death in the Roman system, and Jesus was worthy of being released because he was an innocent man. Pilate said as much. What has he done? Pilate went against everything that Roman law would have required because he was moved by the crowd. He was afraid of the people. He was afraid of the possibility of losing control. The truth is, is he was a coward, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus was an innocent man and should have been released, but Barabbas serves as a picture of all people and shows us that we're all worthy of death. But Jesus, the innocent one, has stepped into the gap and taken our punishment to allow us to go free. Jesus, the innocent lamb, dies in our criminal place. Now, the problem we have, and I, I, I run up against this all the time, the problem we have in the church many times is that there are some of you in this room that have grown up almost your entire life in the church. Or you have a religious background in the church. And, and you might have even come to Christ. You, your testimony might be, when I was five or six years old, Jesus became real to me. And I asked Christ to come into my life. And I went to Sunday school. And I grew up my whole life in the church. And all you've ever known is being a good Christian. And you never went out and did wild stuff, and you never did the crazy stuff, and the stuff that made your parents crazy and ashamed, and you're a relatively good person. And you're sitting here today, and you're thinking, man, that guy's a bad guy. Barabbas was a bad guy. But the reality is, left to yourself, without the protections that were put around you growing up, without the graces that kept your life, without people leading you in the right way, if you'd been raised as some of us in this room were raised, you could have done the same thing. You could have been a murderer. Because inside of you is the same potential, the same potential depravity that a killer could have. So 
Barabbas, the murderer, and and even the best of us in this room, the so-called best of us, according to human standards, have had thoughts. You've had the thought. You've had times in your life when you've hated, times in your life when you've thought, if I could do what I wanted to do, I'd tear their eyeballs out and slit their throat. You've thought it. You know it's true. Or you thought, if I could really do what I wanted to do, I would engage in sexual relations with that person. I would have that person's stuff. You would. And so it's really important that we recognize that there aren't bad people and good people in our world. There are lost people and forgiven and redeemed people. And the forgiven and redeemed people were once lost people. Amen? Secondly, Jesus substitutes for the pilot in each of us. And he said, why? What evil has he done? So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands as though that was going to be good enough enough before the God of heaven. He was only doing it before people. He washed his hands, and we do that all the time in our lives before the crowd says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. We like to shift the blame. We like to act like we're pure and innocent and everything's good. Man, we've been washing our hands. We, Jesus, look, my hands are clean. But the reality is, Pilate wanted to be free of the responsibility of an innocent, man, innocent man's blood without trusting in him to save him. Pilate didn't want to get involved. He became a coward when the pressure of the crowd came upon him. He washed his hands thinking that he was clearing himself of guilt, but he was almost as guilty as the crowd who shouted, crucify him. In fact, without his authority, without his release, Jesus doesn't get crucified. So on one hand, he's going, it would be a lot better to just get you out of the way. Because see, for Pilate, the governor, Jesus was an irritation. Jesus was always stirring stuff up. And if I can finally get this guy out of the way, but I can act innocent. And think about us. Think about the times in our lives when we shift blame or we put things off on others. And then we wash our hands and we say, I'm good. I'm a good person. The Lord knows the heart. You know, a lot of times we claim, it's funny, we, we claim that scripture in, what is it, 1 Samuel 13, where, where the prophet comes to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king. I think it's 15. Anyway. Don't remember where it's at. Comes to the house of Jesse to anoint a new king, and, and, and Jesse calls in all of his sons, and seven of them line up, and the prophet comes to the first son, and he gets ready to anoint him as king over Israel, and he gets ready to do it, and the Lord speaks to him and says, he's not the one. For man looks on the outward appearance, because he was head and shoulders above the rest, and he looked like a natural-born leader. And then the Lord says to him, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we like to say, Lord knows my heart. I have a good heart, but here's the reality. Without the life-changing, redeeming power of grace and the blood of Jesus and God implanting a new heart inside of you, we don't have a good heart. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful and it's wicked above all else. Who can know it? The heart without the redeeming grace of God is evil. None of us can claim to be good here. And Pilate's kind of washing his hands, thinking he's clean and clear because he shifted the blame and he's a coward and he won't own it. But God's going, nope, sorry, buddy. 
you got to come the way all of us do. But yet, you still serve my purpose. You gave up my son because that's my will. And that takes me to the last one. He substitutes for the changeable, fickle, unruly crowd in all of us. But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Before, some in the same crowd, not all, there's some debate out there about how many might have been in both crowds, but it's likely there were at least some of the people that were in the same crowd that had shouted Hosanna. And that means come and save us. Now this same crowd or some of this same crowd shouts out for Jesus to be crucified and his blood to be upon them. They had no idea that this is exactly what was necessary for them to truly be saved. The death of Jesus by crucifixion alone can save people like them and us. And what's so powerful here is we see the idea of the fickle crowd. It's really possible. Listen, in this culture, we're experts at it. Think about our athletes. Think about our movie stars. Think about our, our artists, our music artists. Think about how one week they can be at the top of the charts and on everybody's lips and everybody's talking about them. And a few years later, they do something bonehead or they quit putting out good music or they put out an album and it's not critically acclaimed and everybody's going, they suck. And immediately you go from the crowd singing their praises, putting them up on a pedestal, making an idol of them, to a crowd hating them, despising them, putting them down. The crowd is ever fickle. Popularity changes like that. You can be cool one day and hated the next. Jesus, he really, he really saw that like at an Uber degree, right, on steroids, he saw the reality of what the crowd does. He substitutes. And, and I want to bring the crowd again down to what's personal in us. Think about yourself. I'm thinking about myself. Think about how we can be moved by the wind. Think about how we can get up one day and we just don't feel good about life. Right? Think about how lack of food, lack of sleep, somebody getting in front of you in your car. Right? Comes out of your mouth. Right? You snookin' Right? I mean, we're just all over it. It comes out. C.S. Lewis compares the things in the heart to rats in our cellars. He said, you know, you got a cellar and maybe you got some rats in there. But if you turn the light on and try to go in slowly, you'll never know they're there. But if something suddenly turns the light on, They'll scurry, and you'll know they're there. I remember one time we went to the Philippines, the first time we were there, and somebody put us in a room in the city that nobody had been living in. And David Hubbard and I were together, and we went to this room in this city, and I'll never forget, we opened the door and flipped on the lights, and cockroaches went everywhere. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. I mean, they were everywhere. That's how our hearts can be. When something suddenly provokes us, it shows the reality of our heart. And we want to blame it on, I'm tired, I'm hungry, that person's a jerk, life's hard. But the reality is, is there's stuff in there, and it's hidden. And suddenly the light turns on, and bleh! It's better for us to just admit that we're just like the crowd. We can change in a moment. 
and we need a substitute for all of us. Amen? So, we can go from, Hosanna, hallelujah, Jesus is awesome, life is good, I love this church, I love my Christian family, I love the Bible, I love to pray, I love to worship, everything's good, how can I help, how can I serve, to have in a couple of weeks or things go wrong or somebody makes you mad, to crucify them. <laughs> we have to recognize Jesus alone can save us from ourselves. Amen? Why don't you stand with me?